You're listening to the Matheson Employment Law Podcast, presented by Brian Dunn, Head of Matheson Employment Practice. This is a regular podcast series for HR practitioners, employment lawyers, and in-house counsel, focusing on the legal issues relevant to all companies with employees in Ireland. Hello and welcome. Today, I want to revisit a case that we looked at in episode 24 in spring of last year. And that was a case from the UK that dealt with the question as to when does notice of termination of employment take effect? Does it take effect at the point when it's delivered to the employee's address, when it's received by the employee or when it's actually read by the employee? That question has now made its way right up to the UK Supreme Court. So let's take a look at what that court had to say on it. And in a departure from our normal format, I'd like to invite along one of my colleagues, Geraldine Carr, to join us today. Geraldine is a senior associate in the Matheson Employment Pensions and Benefits Group and has just returned from a six-month secondment to her Californian offices, where she's been working with some of our largest tech and life sciences clients out there. We're going to have a bit of a chat about some of the key trends that she's seen developing in the US workplaces and also some of the issues that US employers are struggling with when it comes to dealing with Irish employment law. But before we get to any of that, let's have a look at what else has been happening in the employment law world since our last podcast. For anyone interested in the Employment Miscellaneous Provisions Bill from 2017, which is the draft legislation which will outlaw the use of zero-hour contracts in Irish law, this legislation has actually made quite a significant bit of progress since our last podcast. While it's not guaranteed just yet, it does seem increasingly likely that it's going to be passed into law before the summer recess, which at this point is about four to six weeks away. There is a lot more interest, I have to say, in the gender pay gap legislation, Though interestingly, even though it was identified as a key priority for the government in its legislative agenda last January, it has run into something of a delay, as the government merges its own version of this legislation with a private member's bill which introduced some additional points. As a consequence, it now seems unlikely to be introduced before the summer, and it's probably going to be the autumn at earliest. Likewise, the draft legislation which proposes to abolish the use of mandatory retirement ages in Irish law is also stalled. This was first introduced in 2017, but at this point in time, it seems that it's not going to come anywhere near being signed into law until the end of the year at very earliest. And finally, if you still live in a cave or haven't checked your email since before last November, you will know, of course, that the GDPR deadline has passed as of the 25th of May and the new data protection regime is in place. I'm not going to talk about it. You've all heard more than enough at this point, I'm sure. But if you are interested in some useful materials on the employment law aspects of this, we have 10 separate short articles on our website which deal with some of the employment and HR issues involved, ranging from employee retention to monitoring employees in the workplace, etc. I'd like to think it's the last time we'd ever have to talk about GDPR, but unfortunately that's not the case. If anything, it's really just the start. You're listening to the Matheson Employment Law Podcast, presented by Brian Dunn, Head of Matheson Employment Practice. So to start off today, I'm joined here by my colleague Geraldine Carr to talk about her six months in the US and what she has seen on the employment law front. So Geraldine, welcome to the podcast. One of the things I'd be really interested in hearing from you about is the top two or three things that surprise US employers in relation to doing business in Ireland. Thanks, Brian. Certainly the most common issue which comes up time and time again is the extent to which an employee's implied contractual right to fair procedures and natural justice in the workplace impacts on the employment relationship and the manner in which dismissals can legally take place in Ireland. 
So many of our US clients are fully up to speed with this, while others, generally those who are establishing operations outside of the US for the first time, will be more surprised by this. As you know, with certain limited exceptions, most employment in the United States is on an at-will basis, meaning that the employer or the employee can terminate the working relationship at any time, as long as the reasons are lawful. So does that mean no notice at all? Generally, yes. Aside from certain situations such as mass layoffs and plant closures, which are governed in the US by the Warren Act, employers in the US are not required to provide employees with notice of termination unless it's provided for in a contract, which again is rare. It can usually then come as a surprise to US employers when they hear that employees in Ireland have a statutory entitlement to notice relative to their length of service, which ranges from one week to eight weeks, and that contracts of employment generally specify even a longer notice period than that, often between one month to six months, depending on the seniority of the role. And when it comes to termination at will, Does that mean the employer can can dismiss the employee in the US in any manner it likes or are there any restrictions on this? Not necessarily in any manner it likes. There are many other types of claims that can be made by terminated US employees, such as, for example, discrimination in the same way as it can be here, also personal injury, wage and hour claims, violation of public policy, and indeed many US Employment Council devote a lot of their time to defending these types of claims. But when it comes to the fairness of the procedures adopted leading up to the decision to dismiss, that this is not a feature of the employment landscape in the US in the same way as it would be in Ireland. It can often then, I suppose, come as a surprise to US employers that in Ireland they must be able to establish both a fair reason for the dismissal and also be able to show that they followed a fair process in implementing that dismissal in order to be able to legitimately defend a dismissal. And what kind of employment claims that you and I deal with on a day-to-day basis come as a real surprise to American employers? Well, one I'd say is the fact that an employee in Ireland may apply to the High Court for the equivalent of a US-style temporary restraining order to restrain a dismissal or perhaps to restrain a disciplinary process or investigation from proceeding. That's a notable difference between the routes employees can take to challenge their dismissal in Ireland versus the routes they can take to do so in the US. And one that can cause much alarm to employers if they're not already aware of this possible risk at the outset and how to mitigate it. So in the US, are they not required to apply any procedures at all? Well, certainly in the US, except for unionised employees covered by a collective bargaining agreement, there are no specific laws which regulate the procedures that an employer must follow in internal procedures such as disciplinary procedures, grievances or addressing bullying and harassment claims. So the extent to which fair procedures and natural justice or what is known as due process in US law should be applied in internal workplace procedures in Ireland and what this actually means in practice therefore generally comes as a surprise to US employers with operations in Ireland. All of our group have worked with US companies numerous times in advising them how to carefully apply their disciplinary policy before making any decision to dismiss and ensuring that any disciplinary hearing is preceded by a thorough investigation into the matters that have given rise to the disciplinary hearing. Um, As you know, Brian, these processes have become even more difficult to get right in light of the High Court decision last year in the Lyons case, which was covered in a previous podcast. 
This case seems to suggest that at the investigation stage, an employee is entitled to the full range of fair procedures, including the right to legal representation and the right to cross-examine witnesses. As our interpretation of this decision is that it is only if the investigation stage is a fact-finding exercise as opposed to fact-gathering that fair procedures apply at that stage and the right to legal representation at these meetings is really only limited to very serious disciplinary cases. Nonetheless, this is a key difference between internal employment processes and procedures in the US and Ireland and the types of issues that need to be considered in an Irish context. And of course, the Lions decision is something we covered in a couple of detailed podcasts last summer, and it was a surprise to all of us to think that the case was going that far. So it's no surprise to see that American employers are shocked at the idea of an internal investigation going to such degree as well. So just moving on, Geraldine, are there any other key areas that really do come as a surprise to, to US employers in dealing with Irish employment law? Yes, another area which is of general interest to US employers and US Employment Council is in relation to trade union recognition and collective bargaining. So in the US, the National Labour Relations Act gives private sector workers the right to choose whether they wish to be represented by a union and it makes it illegal for employers to refuse to engage in collective bargaining with the union that represents their employees. Whereas in Ireland, as you know, employers are not required to recognise or engage with trade unions in relation to their employees. So this is always a welcome surprise for US clients operating here in Ireland. And from dealing with a lot of US clients in Ireland, the impression I get in more recent years is that the level of trade union representation isn't all that huge. And if anything, it's decreasing. Is that still the case or is that the impression you get from your time out there? It certainly is. In the US today, I believe trade unions represent less than 7% of private sector workers. However, the National Labour Relations Board, or the NLRB, as it is known in the US, protects the rights of non-management employees to engage in protected and concerted activity involving wages, hours and working conditions, even in the absence of a union. So as a result, the cost to US employers in bargaining with unions and employees in matters relating to mandatory terms and conditions of employment and dealing with union strikes, work to rule campaigns, allegations of unfair labour practices, all of those costs can be huge. In addition, I noticed in my time in the US that the NLRB is actively focused on expanding labour rights and representation to categories of workers that it wouldn't traditionally have represented in the past. So that's interesting, Geraldine, that the level of trade union representation at at just below 7%, it's probably even lower than the private sector in Ireland. But it seems in the US legal system, the law and the structure around trade union rights just gives them much greater opportunity to influence things in the workplace. It just allows them to be a lot more effective than the equivalent law does in Ireland. That's right. We are seeing unions becoming increasingly active in Ireland in seeking to gain support of employees and to obtain a greater level of recognition, particularly, as you mentioned, in relation to FDI employers in Ireland, in the pharma, medical devices and fintech sector, employers that traditionally simply wouldn't have considered union targeting them over the past 20 years and this is something that is certainly of interest to a large number of our clients. The approach that the unions appear to be adopting in doing so is the more traditional approach of issuing demanding letters into senior management and requesting the right to bargain and claiming to represent a large number of employees even if that's not the case. As you noted in a previous podcast, Brian, where these letters don't get them the desired outcome, the unions often then threaten industrial action. And in some cases, we've seen them go ahead with pickets in companies that have never previously faced IR issues. 
So what's the third area that comes as a huge surprise to employers in the US? I think data privacy is one that's certainly usually topical at the moment. Clearly, it's been a huge issue across Europe in the last few months. And it's an area that was very much at the forefront of US employers and US councils minds in relation to their Irish operations. They were looking at the impact that GDPR would have on their businesses. And in the US, various federal and state laws govern employees' rights regarding privacy and monitoring in the workplace, but not to the same extent. Generally, if if a private employer in the US had given notice and obtained prior consent from the employee, employee monitoring is allowed under US law. It therefore came as a huge surprise to US employers that in Ireland there was already a serious question mark over employers using employee consent as a legitimate basis for processing employee data and that under the new GDPR regime, employers will now have to instead rely on another legitimate basis for processing employee data. Also, in the US, employees' activities while using an employer's computer system are largely unprotected by personal privacy laws. For example, emails are considered company property if sent using the company computer system. And typically, if an employer has a valid business purpose for monitoring an employee's email and internet usage, the employer is simply allowed to do so. As you know, under GDPR, however, employers in Ireland will now have to work a whole lot harder to show that there is a legitimate basis for monitoring employees. And they must be upfront with employees around what the purpose of that monitoring is and the extent to which the data can be used. And I've seen in recent months how a lot of our US clients have been shocked by the extent to which the GDPR changes the employment relationship and what they have to do on the ground. But is there a particular aspect of the whole data protection regime that they really struggle with? Probably the biggest area of surprise for US employers is in relation to data access requests, whereby an employee can request copies of all personal data their employer holds. The exercise the employer has to take of retrieving such data can be hugely costly and time consuming, given that employers will likely have to review large volumes of information in order to identify the data subject's personal data and to redact third party data or other non-personal data from that. So this right, as you know, has existed for some time in Ireland and across Europe. But given the huge focus on privacy rights in recent times and the GDPR, which has been introduced last month, we are seeing employees make such requests a lot more frequently in recent times. They use such requests as a form of pre-litigation discovery. In addition, the GDPR has introduced several changes which make it more onerous on employers to comply with such requests. So, for example, the time frame for compliance with a data access request is now reduced from 40 days down to 30 days. And the employee will also be entitled to ask a series of questions of the employer in regard to their practices around data retention and data processing. We're seeing employees ask employers now what type of data the employer retains in relation to the employee and what those categories of data are. They will be entitled to ask what the purpose of the processing is and whether or not their data is being transferred outside of the EU and if so, on what basis. Okay. Can we turn now to some of the trends that you've seen developing over the last six months? Because what I've noticed over the years in dealing with international clients is that when there's an idea in a workplace in California, it's often only a matter of months before the same idea is rolled out on the workplace in Ireland. And likewise, some of the the legislative changes that you see in the US sometimes feed into practices here. So what kind of trends did you see emerging in employment law in the US during your six months there? 
I would say measures to address pay inequities are clearly high on the agenda at the moment. And recently we saw Forbes released its list of the top 100 paid athletes in the world. And there wasn't a single woman on the list, which clearly indicates an obvious gender pay gap in the sporting world. And although they're not the most representative group of employees, it shows that pay inequity and gender pay gaps do exist across various classes of employees. Equal pay claims are widespread in the US and employers in the US are are working with their US counsel to conduct attorney-client privileged internal audits to ensure that their compensation policies and practices are in compliance with equality legislation and to be able to explain any pay differentials that do exist and that are transparent when when they conduct those audits. So I've seen some coverage around legislation that prevents employers from asking candidates about their salary in the last job. How does that work or what's that meant to achieve? That's correct. That law came into effect in California in January of this year. So essentially it's to prohibit a gender pay gap being, I suppose, transferred or being a legacy of, of the employee's employment over time. So the law essentially requires employers to provide candidates with a pay range for a prospective job upon request. And it prohibits employers, whether it's a recruitment agency or the employer themselves, from asking questions about what the employee earned in their previous job. I suppose the the background to this is that it has been reported widely across the the US that women in the US earn 79 cents for every dollar men earn. And the theory is that salary history questions can inadvertently cause these inequalities to worsen over time insofar as they result in the female employee carrying a legacy pay gap from one employer to another. This trend is certainly consistent with our own national spotlight on pay equity at the moment and draft legislation published in Ireland this year, if enacted, would require employers to report and provide information in relation to gender pay gap and the scale of any differences in the organisation where those employers have 50 employees or more. And interestingly, probably in preparation for our own legislation, but also as a consequence of what our US clients have already gone through in California and other states where they have this legislation, we're already dealing with US clients who are asking these questions and getting this information ready. But what I I found most interesting about it actually was that they're not just asking the questions so that they can spin the information in the most positive light. They're actually asking it so that they can identify the underlying issues and fix them. So the legislation clearly is achieving its purpose in addressing the gender equity. Yes, and there's certainly a benefit to employers conducting these internal pay audits at this point in time and being able to identify gaps and then take measures to address them before the reporting obligation comes on employers. So what else are you seeing then in terms of trends? So in the US, in 2018, sexual harassment reform is expected at federal, state and local levels. I've seen there that many US states have proposed bills banning non-disclosure agreements in sexual harassment settlements and also limiting the use of confidentiality clauses in such cases. I've also seen that new tax laws contain a provision prohibiting deductions for settlements relating to sexual harassment if the payment is subject to a non-disclosure provision. So if this was carried over here, it would certainly make settling and resolving such matters much more difficult for employers here in Ireland. And there is no planned Irish legislation on that particular tax point? No, there's not. So what else are employers doing to actually get ahead of the whole Me Too movement and, and the sexual harassment issues? Well, in practice, they're reviewing their internal anti-harassment policies to ensure that they comply with best practices. 
They're also reviewing their training programmes and procedures for handling such complaints so that employees are empowered to step forward. In the US, there are some mandatory sexual harassment training programmes that must be carried out by employers. So employers are ensuring that those are being carried out. And this this trend is consistent with what we're also seeing in Ireland, where employers are noticing an increase in the number of allegations of sexual harassment. So they in two are also reviewing their policies and procedures and training programmes to ensure there's a greater level of awareness around such policies and to ensure that they comply with the various procedures for addressing such allegations as set out in our various codes of practice here in Ireland. And then maybe as one last trend, what, what else have you seen? Well, I suppose working with our many tech clients, we've observed a very competitive race amongst tech companies in particular when it comes to the level of workplace benefits that they offer to attract and retain talent. For example, this seems to be part of a global trend where millennials are said to place a greater value on non-monetary workplace benefits as a component of their remuneration package. Benefits like free food and free beer and pool tables and free massages are standard perks at large companies and they're even pretty common at startup companies too. So I've seen a lot of small to medium tech companies in particular having to become much more innovative when it comes to the benefits that they offer so that they can compete with the larger tech companies such as Google or Facebook who are known for their generous benefits. I'm not sure how innovative it is to observe that young people like free beer, but anyway. True. And on the flip side, those large tech companies are having to stay ahead of the curve when it comes to the types of benefits that they offer, as they can often lose staff who prefer to work at a company which is at the pre-IPO stage or even a startup stage. There's a certain level of excitement in working with a company that is about to become the next big Google or Facebook. And a number of our clients are seeking our advice then on how competitive their benefit packages are and how they can perhaps stay ahead of the curve and compete with the larger tech clients. And they're becoming much more, I suppose, inventive in terms of devising policies and procedures around innovative workplace benefits. Thanks, Geraldine. It sounds like it's been a, a very interesting six months for you. Thanks, Brian. It certainly was. So let's turn now to our case review. And this is the final saga in the case of Newcastle, NHS Trust and Haywood, decision from 2017. This would be the fourth full outing for this case in the UK Supreme Court. And as some of you may know, the UK Supreme Court is the highest court in the land. So this is the final determination of the issue. And it dealt with the very simple question of when does notice of termination of employment become effective? Is it when it is delivered to the employee's address? Is it when it's received by the employee? Or is it when it's read by the employee? And this may seem like a classic exercise in lawyers splitting hairs, but depending on the circumstances, it can have very real and significant consequences for both the employee and the employer. For example, it can make the difference as to whether or not an employee is entitled to bring a claim of unfair dismissal. It can determine whether or not an employee will or will not be paid a bonus or will or will not receive the next round of share options. Or as we saw in Miss Haywood's particular case, whether or not the notice issued before or after her 50th birthday, and there was only a day in the difference in this case, as you will see, it made the difference of £200,000 to her pension. So it can be a very significant question. The facts of the case from our previous podcast when we looked at this last year are as follows. Miss Haywood was a senior business development director in the NHS Trust in the north of England. She received a salary of £86,000 a year, which is the highest salary point in the Trust's pay scale. She was with the organisation for three years up to the point that she was made redundant. 
On the 13th of April 2011, she was invited to a meeting with her manager and a member of HR. And at that meeting, she was told that her role was being put at risk of redundancy. She was told also that if she was terminated, she would be entitled to 12 weeks notice. In addition, she was also advised that if she was terminated after the 20th of July 2011, which was her 50th birthday, she would be entitled to an additional pension payment of £200,000. So as you can see on the dates, the organisation was already up against the clock, in that in order to avoid having to pay this additional pension payment, they needed to issue her notice to her working back from the 20th of July on the basis of 12 weeks by no later than the 26th of April. In the same meeting, Ms Haywood advised the manager that she was actually due to go on two weeks leave from the 19th of April and that she would be in Egypt on holidays for one of those weeks. As it turns out, she actually went off on sick leave that very same date and then sick leave progressed into her two weeks leave and she went off to Egypt for one week in the middle of it from the 19th of April. During her absence, and I can only assume in order to avoid having to make the pension payment, the employer went ahead and made her redundant and on the 20th of April issued three separate forms of notice to her. It was an identical letter, as I understand from the case, but it was sent by email, by registered post and by ordinary post. The email, we assume, arrived instantaneously, but it was sent to her husband's email address. The ordinary post letter arrived on the 26th of April, so still within time, but just barely there. And likewise, the registered post, because she wasn't at home to sign for it, went back to the post office. By some curious coincidence, her father-in-law realised that the registered post slip was at the front door of the house and went to the post office to collect the registered post. He brought the registered post back to her house and left it at the house again on the 26th of April. However, Murphy's Law being what it is once again, even though Miss Haywood was due to return from Egypt on the 26th of April, for some reason, and it doesn't say why in the case, she actually was delayed and didn't return home until the 27th of April. And it was over the course of the 27th of April that she received and opened the email and the registered post. Inevitably, there was a dispute on this key point. Because if you take the employer's position that notice is effective on the date that it was delivered to her home, the 26th of April, well then the employer had effected the notice in advance of the 20th of July and therefore she wasn't due the £200,000 pension payment. On the other side, if you take Miss Hayward's point, She said she didn't receive or read the notice until the 27th of April. It's only one day later, but that one day would get her to the 20th of July, and therefore she would be entitled to the £200,000 payment. When the case came before the High Court in the UK, the High Court found in her favour. It ruled that notice of termination is not effective until the employee has actually read it. Now this is a hugely problematic and in fact dangerous proposition for employers because If you think about it in a practical sense, it gives an employee the opportunity to delay notice taking effect, to delay the dismissal date simply by choosing not to read the notice. In any sort of real world, that's just not workable. The employer then appealed the decision to the Court of Appeal, which overturned the High Court decision. The Court of Appeal found that notice is effective once the employee receives it, irrespective of whether or not the employee actually goes on to read it. Now, on the facts of this particular case, because Miss Haywood didn't receive or read the notice until the 27th of April, it meant the notice wouldn't expire until after her 50th birthday. So in effect, she still won either way. The employer's case was rejected by the Court of Appeal insofar as the employer was suggesting that notice is effective as soon as it's delivered to the employee's address. The employer appealed the decision to the UK Supreme Court and what the Supreme Court held was as follows. 
Firstly, it rejected the suggestion by the employer that notice is effective as soon as it is delivered, irrespective of whether it's received and read by the employee. The Supreme Court, however, overturned the Court of Appeal and went one step further. It held that notice is not effective until the employee has received it and also read it or, critically, has had a reasonable opportunity to do so. So, while the Supreme Court certainly went further than the Court of Appeal did, it didn't go as far as the original High Court decision because it qualified the High Court's original proposition. What it said was, as long as the employee had read it or, critically, had a reasonable opportunity to read it, well then the notice was effective. So to put a bit of life on that, in Miss Haywood's case, if she had come home from her holidays, saw the letter from her employer, quickly worked out what it was and tried to box clever by deciding not to open the letter, it wouldn't have been possible for her to say, well, I've never read the letter, therefore it's not effective. In that case, she would have had a reasonable opportunity to open the notice and read the notice, therefore it would have been effective on her, even if she chose not to. Ultimately, on the facts, she still won because she didn't read or receive the notice until after the 27th of April. So back to the same point, notice didn't expire until after her 50th birthday, so she received the higher pension. But you can see how the point could have been critical for her. Those of you, of course, who are regular listeners to this series will know I like to ask, what does this mean for you as representatives of employers in Ireland? And I think there are definitely some positives and negatives that we can take from this case. It's a negative insofar as the decision confirms that delivery of notice itself is not sufficient to affect notice, but I think we expected that. However, it's absolutely a positive insofar as it kills off the idea that notice is not effective until the employee has read it. So employees simply won't have the opportunity to delay a dismissal or delay notice taking effect by refusing to read the notice. The qualification in the Supreme Court judgment that once the employee has had a reasonable opportunity to read it is what saves employers in this situation. Of course, Murphy's Law does seem to be the only law left in the world that can't be repealed, so there will still be any number of fact scenarios where the question over what is a reasonable opportunity becomes debated, and we'll just have to deal with that as it comes up. So there will be some uncertainty for employers in this area. If you need to remove an employee by a particular date in order to avoid them accruing an entitlement or an additional benefit, etc., the best approach I can give you is as follows. The most obvious advice is to make sure that you leave yourself ample time, not just to cover the notice, but also to cover any likely delays in preparing the notice, getting it signed off by the appropriate manager, and also to deal with contingencies such as, in Ms. Hayward's case, holidays, the employee being out sick, etc. The next bit of advice I would give, and particularly in light of this decision, is that if you are issuing notice, that it is always preferable to issue and communicate the notice directly to the employee in person. That way there can be no doubt about the notice not being received and delivered on the same date. And there can be no doubt as to the employee understanding the impact of the notice. In Miss Haywood's case, what complicated everything was the fact that she had been out sick on leave, then had been on holidays, then was back from holidays a day later than planned, etc. If everything is done in the one day, and ideally at the same time, it removes all of this doubt. The third option, of course, is as the court suggested in this case, that an employer would build in a deemed receipt rule into the notice clause in the contract, so that once delivered, it is deemed to have been received and read. That is something that perhaps, as I say, we are going to see a lot more of following this decision. Overall, it's obviously a very curious decision, and it's one that you might think is unique and only really applies in this particular set of circumstances. But in my experience, these type of unique sets of circumstances are remarkably common. To go back to where we started in all of this, it is a very simple question. 
But as you can see, because of the way the facts panned out in this particular case, it became a £200,000 question. This is one we'll watch to see how it's followed in the Irish courts. Thanks for listening to the Matheson Employment Law Podcast. If you have any questions or comments, please email brian, that's B-R-Y-A-N, dot dunn at matheson.com. This podcast contains general information about Irish law. It is not intended to provide legal advice on any particular matter and is for general information purposes only. You should not act or refrain from acting on the basis of any material contained in this podcast without seeking the appropriate legal or other professional advice. Tune in next time for another Matheson Employment Law podcast. For further information, visit matheson.com.